Wow, they're well-trained here. They just settle down by themselves. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I know a good number of you because um, I was at this church for 10 years, um, but some of them, some of you all are uh, new, and I have yet to meet you, and that's okay, but maybe uh, meet you afterwards. But I send greetings from uh, Megumi Bible Church in Tokyo. Um, I am the uh, pastor over there, and we planted uh, the church about four years ago, and I've uh, been in Tokyo for uh, yeah, since 2019. So I send you greetings from the church. Thank you so much for your prayers and support and your love for our church. Uh, I know some of you have also visited our church, and um, some of you plan to visit our church in the future because Tokyo is such a cool place, and I know you all want to go there. But um, thank you so much. Uh, for the different ways uh, you care uh, for our little church over there. Now, I know that um, uh, today there's communion, so uh, it's a little bit, I need to shorten my message. I was told to shorten my message, and um, which is a good thing to remind a master's seminary graduate of, because we have this disease, and we can't tell time, and so uh, we just go on and on. But uh, I think I think I have... Uh, Cut down my notes enough to have a, uh, for you guys to have communion and to end on time, maybe even early. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what the Lord has planned. Indeed, uh, the Lord uh, plans all sorts of different things, even power outages. And uh, we want to recognize his sovereignty and goodness even in those things. So let me pray, and uh, we'll get into today's message. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning, for gathering us together to worship you. Indeed, it's such a privilege, honor, and blessing to be able to do that, Lord, and uh, we recognize your goodness in allowing us to come together as a church. Um, Sundays are uh, long where uh, at our church in Tokyo, and sometimes they're difficult because there's so many things to do or maybe different uh, things, difficult things to even tackle, but every time I go to church uh, on the way back, I just think, wow, what a blessing that was. Indeed, we have a tremendous privilege here this morning. We pray that you bless uh, today's uh, message. Today we'll be looking at something very important, which I'll get into very soon. And pray that you'd open our eyes to the truth, open our hearts to the truth. Help us to understand your word and apply it to our lives for your glory. And praise in Christ's name, amen. All right. Um, actually, I didn't wish you guys Happy New Year. It's kind of a little bit later. It's like a week, uh, been a week, but uh, Happy New Year. And um, when I was thinking about what to do for the first sermon of the new year, uh, I thought it'd be uh, appropriate to focus on the concept of newness. In the word new year, right? So I thought it'd be good to focus on the concept of newness. And the first thing uh, that came to mind when thinking about newness was the new heaven and the new earth. The new heaven and the new earth. The new heaven and the new earth is our ultimate destination for all of us who are believers. But unfortunately, we can lose sight of this ultimate goal because of all the distractions in life. And it seems like more than ever, there's uh, distractions. We have our devices even. Uh, ringing, beeping all the time, distracting us. I mean, sometimes that's a good thing. Uh, sometimes we need to be notified of things right away. But it seems like uh, there are more distractions than ever, and we lose sight of our ultimate goals at times. Now, there's a famous Christian, I guess, classic novel that I think all, maybe, or at least most of you know of, and it's called The Pilgrim's Progress. A uh, very, very famous work. Um, if you know uh, Charles Spurgeon and maybe have used his um, devotional book, Morning and Evening, or I think they, sometimes they split that up. Uh, he quotes it all the time, which tells us uh, that's a pretty important book. Uh, it's the Prince of Preachers there, uh, Charles Spurgeon, and he quotes it all the time. And many preachers quote uh, from the Pilgrim's Progress all the time. Now, in that book, in case you haven't read it, the main character, his name is Christian, 
it's kind of, uh, he didn't work too hard on like hiding what he wants to communicate there. But the main, Chris, uh, main character's name is Christian. And he just goes through life and encounters all these uh, different challenges. And he goes to challenging places uh, with interesting names such as the Valley of Humiliation, uh, the Valley of the Shadow of Death, uh, and Vanity Fair. And as he faced these challenges, uh, Christian needed to keep reminding himself that he needed to reach his goal, which was the celestial city. And we need to remind ourselves of the same thing. And so I'd like to use today as an opportunity for us to do that. So it's the first uh, Sunday of the new year, and it's a great time to remind ourselves of that ultimate goal. We need to remember that there is a finish line, and it may seem far away, but this finish line is attainable if we follow God's directions on how to get there. And if we pursue this goal according to God's word, we will certainly be able to cross that finish line and reach that final destination that at the bottom of everyone's heart, I know we all want to go there. We all want to reach that final destination. So the passage I want to look at today is Revelation 21, 1 through 8. So Revelation 21, 1 through 8. But before I read the actual passage, uh, I want to prepare ourselves for the reading of that passage by first talking about the book of Revelation a little bit. Now, the book of Revelation is very uh, difficult and kind of mysterious book, so I'd like to talk about it a little bit before we actually read the passage. Now, first, uh, a good place to start as to, uh, you know, before getting into a book, is to find out who wrote Revelation and who it was written to. So we're talking about the author and recipient here. Knowing the author and recipient always helps us understand how to interpret whatever piece of writing we're dealing with. For for example, uh, let's take a letter. And uh, if I write the words... I love you in a letter, and you know it's from me to my son, Masanobi, you know how to interpret that kind of love. There's all sorts of different kinds of love, and if you know it's from me to my son, Masanobu, you know that's a fatherly kind of love, right? Or if you see the words, I love you, and it's from me to my wife, Shelly, you know that's a husbandly, I don't know if that's a word, kind of love, or a even romantic kind of love, which may be too much information for you guys, <laughs> but uh, you know how to interpret it because you know who wrote it and to whom it was written. So regarding the author of Revelation, uh, it's John the Apostle, and the author calls himself John a number of times in Revelation, and based on different things like the uh, writer's description of himself in Revelation, his, uh, the writing style that you can see in Revelation, And also the historical uh, testimony of the church. Uh, It's safe to say that John the Apostle, uh, there's a lot of Johns in the Bible, but John the Apostle is the author of Revelation. Now just to give a simple explanation of who John is. He's the brother of James the Apostle. Again, there's a number of Jameses uh, in the Bible. uh, But James the Apostle's brother, uh, this John is. Uh, And they were both fishermen. And Peter, James, and John were disciples, or the closest disciples of Jesus. And Jesus gave these brothers, uh, James and John, a a nickname, the Sons of Thunder, uh, possibly because they had fiery personalities. But apparently John's uh, fiery personality had toned down because uh, he became known for teachings on Christian love. Like if you want to study Christian love, John's writings are some of the best things to study in the Bible. And he also became known for addressing his audience very tenderly uh, with terms like little children. And the last part, uh, that last part about addressing uh, his audience as little children, that might have something to do with also his age. Um, He wrote uh, a number of uh, letters or parts of the uh, New Testament uh, besides Revelation. So he wrote the Gospel of John, and then, of course, he wrote the uh, three epistles, first, second, third John. And uh, he probably wrote that, uh, those works in his old age, 
maybe in his 80s or 90s even. Now, according to tradition, uh, John was exiled uh, to an island between Greece and Turkey. It's a little bit closer to uh, Turkey, and that island was called Patmos. And it was during uh, a great a time of great persecution when he wrote some of these letters, or uh, wrote his works. And that persecution was implemented by the Roman Emperor uh, Domitian, who reigned from 81 to 96 A.D. And then, well, maybe I'll just move on, but that's John the Apostle. Now, regarding the recipients, uh, we can talk about them on a couple of levels, and I'm going to be brief with this. Um, First, in the book of Revelation, uh, even within the book of Revelation, there are some letters inside of it. Uh, You can find those letters in chapters 2 and 3, and they're written to seven different churches. And all of those uh, churches are in modern-day Turkey, or back then, I guess we called it Asia Minor. So on one level, you can say that those seven churches uh, are the audience of Revelation. However, as uh, one scholar mentioned, uh, though there's content in Revelation specifically written to those seven churches, uh, the writer probably had a wider audience in mind, uh, namely all Christians, uh, at that time and even uh, beyond that time. Now, regarding the interpretation of Revelation, uh, it's, of course, known to be one of the hardest books in the Bible to interpret, and there are many good scholars who argue a lot over the different meanings uh, of different passages in Revelation. And uh, because it's mainly uh, prophecy and there's so much symbolism inside of Revelation, that's why there's so many interpretations. However, if you read it carefully... Uh, you can tell uh, what is meant to be symbolic or literal, I think. Because there, there are a lot of hints. John gives us a lot of hints as to whether you wanna, he wants you to interpret something, or when he's speaking, he means it symbolically or not. And he uses words like like or as. And, of course, when you see those words, oh, you know that it's not literal, but it's, he's trying to tell you it's similar to this or that, whatever he's talking about. And regarding our passage today, there's really not much uh, symbolism there. Maybe just a couple of phrases, but the meaning is clear. So we're not going to run into uh, too many uh, uh, interpretation issues in terms of whether something's symbolic or not. We're not going to run into that uh, today. Now, one last thing I'd like to talk about before I read our passage is the outline of Revelation. Now, I am... Uh, taking us right to the pretty much the end, like the second to last chapter of the whole book, without really dealing with the first uh, 20 chapters. And that's always a, a dangerous thing to do when uh, trying to interpret the Bible properly. I mean, it's the same as anything else. Like if you're watching a, a drama series, you're going to watch you know, the last episode first. Or I know, I know a lot of you like those Marvel movies, but maybe you kind of jumped in a little bit later. But I think a lot of you probably went to the beginning and watched everything until, uh, let's say, uh, the movie that came out in the theater and you want to see that movie. You maybe watched everything uh, up until that point so you can enjoy that movie and understand it better. So the same thing, right? Um, we are jumping into the like, second last chapter of a 22-chapter book. So uh, it's good to have at least an overview of what we're dealing with. Now let me give you a really, really uh, simple outline of Revelation. And I'm getting this from um, a guy named Scott Busher. Some of you might know him because he was a, I don't know what he does now, but like, uh, at least my time, he was a professor at the Master's Seminary. I think he's also a pastor. Uh, but he gives, uh, in one of his works, a very simple uh, six-part outline of Revelation. It's really, really simple. So first is this introduction. Uh, John's greeting and Christ's opening words. And he says that that's from uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 8. And you don't, if you really want the outline, uh, I could give it to you later. Uh, but just kind of listen and uh, to get an idea of the feel of the overview of the book. So that's introduction, verses 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. Second, um, actually second, third, fourth, fifth, there's four, he says there's four visions. So it's going to be introduction, four visions, conclusion. That's, that's the six parts. So the first vision, he says, it's those letters to the seven churches, which he, uh, he starts it at 1-9. So chapter 1, verse 9, and he says that goes through chapter 3, 
or chapter 3, verse 22. Second vision. He says that's the vision of God's throne room and the vision of the great tribulation. So that's the bulk of the book. So from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 16, he calls that the second vision. So the first, I think it's 4 and 5, which is the vision of God's throne room, and the rest of it is just the great tribulation. All those things you hear about trumpets and, and seals and things like that, that's that part, that second vision. Next, uh, third vision, the vision of Christ's second coming and final judgments. And he says that's chapters uh, 17, uh, verse 1, all the way through 21, verse 8. And today's passage is found at the very end of that section, and it's kind of an introduction to the next part, or the final vision. So the fourth vision is the vision of the new creation and what the rest of eternity uh, will look like. And that's in 21, verse 9, uh, through 22, verse 5. And then the conclusion, the rest of it, uh, verses, or chapter 22, verse 6 through 21. John gives an invitation to salvation, and then Christ gives some final words. So that's kind of your overview of Revelation. Okay, I think we're ready to get into uh, the passage now. Ready to read the passage now. All right, so um, I think all you probably turned there, either in your devices or in your Bibles. But I'll be reading uh, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. There are many passages in the Bible that talk about heaven. I think this is one of the best. So Revelation 21, 1. Uh, and following. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who, has, who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So today's passage is about a new home for God and his people. A new home for God and his people. And there are two main sections in today's passage. First, there is a description of the new home in verses 1 through 4. And second, there are directions to the new home in verses 5 through 8. So we need to study the description and directions to our new home so that we'll be able to honor God better as we endure the hardships of life. So let's take a look at the first point, John's description of our new future home in verses 1 through 4. Now John describes our new home in three different ways here. He describes it physically, relationally, and emotionally. So let's look at how John describes it physically or visually in verses 1 and 2. So God gives John a vision of three places here. A new heaven, verse 1, a new earth in verse 1, a new city in verse 2. And this sight is quite a contrast with what John was looking at just earlier. Because the last thing that John saw was the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. And the great white throne judgment is the final judgment of unbelievers as they're all thrown into the lake of fire, which you can say is the eternal state for hell. 
So John is looking at something a whole lot nicer and better uh, right now. He's looking at the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. But in what way is it new? Now, there's some uh, debate over whether this is what we call renovation or a complete recreation. And we can actually disagree on this, but let me explain that a little bit. Uh, So a renovation would be like what uh, you do to your home. Let's say you have a a home, it's a fixer-upper, and you remodel it. A recreation would be like tearing down the whole building and building a completely new one from scratch. Now, uh, some people draw an analogy uh, between the renewal of our bodies and the renewal of uh, the heaven and earth. Now, it's true that when we get resurrected bodies, there's something from the old that remains. For example, we know that the resurrected Jesus still had his scars, right? He showed uh, his disciples the scars in his hands, so he still had that. However, I don't know if uh, creation's renewal uh, needs to exactly parallel uh, the renewal of our bodies. I don't know if there's an absolute you know, uh, reason uh, to think that. Uh, the Bible is not explicit about that. I think the better answer of the two is a complete re- recreation, and that's because of what the context of uh, Revelation 1 seems to indicate. Now, Revelation 20.11, so just a few verses ago, uh, says, uh, from his, and this is the judge on the great white throne, from his presence, uh, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So that tells me that it's gone. Uh, that it disappeared. So just a few verses earlier from our passage today, John said that the earth and sky just went out of existence. And then here in uh, Revelation 21.1, John says that he saw a new heaven and a new earth. And one more piece of evidence is the fact that we know that there isn't a sea uh, on the new earth. And we see that at the end of uh, verse 1 of chapter 11, and that's the first verse of today's passage, Uh, The current earth, of course, is uh, 75% water, and then the new earth doesn't have any sea. So to take away the sea would completely change the earth's various systems. And so I think it uh, it makes a lot more sense for God to just recreate the earth uh, from scratch rather than to reshape the current earth. So I think that the recreation view might be the stronger view, but you can disagree with me on that one. But just please know the different arguments. All right, let's talk about what the word heaven means here. Now, there are uh, three basic definitions uh, of the Greek word for heaven. First is uh, outer space where the stars are. Second, it's the sky where the birds fly. And then third, it's the realm where God dwells. So the first two are physical, and uh, the third is spiritual. And since John just talked about the physical heaven and earth disappearing, it makes sense to think that the new heaven and earth is also physical. And other than uh, the heaven and earth being new and not having a sea anymore, uh, we don't know much else about the appearance of the new heaven and earth. On the other hand, we do uh, have quite a bit of detail from the passage on the new city, the new Jerusalem. Now, most of the details regarding what it looks like are actually in the next passage, uh, 21.9 through 22.5, but we do have some detail here in uh, 21, chapter 21, verse 2. The first detail we know about is that the city is called holy. Uh, something holy, of course, is something that's dedicated to God. It's different from all other cities. It's special. It's sacred. Uh, It is set apart for God, and there is no city like it. Now, the old Jerusalem is also referred to as a holy city. So there is something uh, special to God about Jerusalem. Now, God could have given uh, this city a completely different name, or he could have chosen a different city uh, to uh, to renew and make his capital. But instead, he chose the same old city name to be the name for the new city. And the fact that it's called New Jerusalem tells us that there's some uh, connection with the old one. 
the preservation of the name of that capital city of Israel testifies to God's faithfulness to fulfill his covenant promises to the Jews. And as one commentator put it, it is the final realization of the kingdom of God. It's the end goal of a plan that has been there all along. So he did not change the name. And please note that uh, John does not say that the first Jerusalem has passed away. It's only the first heaven and first earth that is said to have passed away. However, John sees the new Jerusalem come down from heaven, which tells me that the heavenly new Jerusalem uh, already exists. Now, there are, two, uh, there are issues that are uh, too complicated uh, right now to deal with, but there has to be a place for believers who have already passed away and believers who, did, who never passed away like uh, Enoch and Elijah. There's got to be a place for them to exist, right? But the place can still be called new, uh, because it's currently unfinished. In John 14, 2 and 3, Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. I think you guys are familiar with this passage. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare, prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So there seems to be some type of a continual building of the city until it comes down from heaven in its completed form. So, Belinda Carlisle wasn't completely wrong when she said that heaven is a place on earth. It's just not the way she meant it. I say, you people who are not part of the, you never saw the 80s, probably don't know what that means. But that's okay. You can ask the older folks about that. But uh, literal heaven uh, will indeed uh, be a place on earth, more, more or less, because God will dwell in the new Jerusalem, which will be on the new earth surrounded by the new heavens. And then we see the origin of the city in the phrase, from God. Now, this is consistent with Hebrews 11.10, which talks about how uh, the city that Abraham was looking forward to has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And this idea is further developed in the last phrase of verse 2. The city is being prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And like most, if not all cultures, uh, when the bride uh, prepares for her wedding, uh, she will be lavishly adorned. In Isaiah 61.10, speaking for Israel, uh, Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And going back to Revelation 12, I'm sorry, 21.2, the word for adorned means to uh, put in order as to appear neat or well-organized, or to cause something to have an attractive appearance through decoration. And that word is based on the Greek word cosmos. And you probably know a lot of uh, words that uh, have that root in it. And uh, one of them is cosmetics. And I'm taking this analogy from someone else, so if you don't like it, you I'm going to blame that person. But um, with cosmetics, uh, this is going to be a little insulting, but <laughs> with cosmetics, you know, person puts on, I'll just person puts on cosmetics uh, to put their face in order, right? So uh, cosmos, the, the root meaning is, is order. Now, I won't read it, but the rest of Revelation 21 is a description of the beauty and order of the new Jerusalem. The city is a perfectly organized place and is decorated with jewels just like how a bride is on her wedding day. So that's the physical appearance of the new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem. Next, let's talk about our new home from a relational standpoint in verse 3. So we switch over from what John saw with his eyes to what he heard. And the fact that what he heard was emphasized twice uh, demonstrates its importance. 
So first, it's emphasized by a loud voice uh, from a throne. Now, every, any word from a throne is already uh, important since they're going to be words from a king. And uh, by the way, judging by the pronouns, uh, it is not God himself who is speaking, but someone else is speaking about him. Perhaps it's an angel, but we're not sure, but it's from this direction from a throne. But the important thing is, uh, the important thing to understand is that the voice is loud, which adds emphasis to the passage or the message. And second is emphasized even more with the words, behold, calling for your attention. The voice calls the audience to pay attention to what is being said right here. So what is this important message that God has? Now, it is simple but profound. In fact, I would say that there is no more important message than the one here in verse 3, and I'll read it again. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, is this not the heart of the Christmas message? We have celebrated Christmas. Is this not the heart of the Christmas message? Now, different Bible passages talk about Jesus as our Emmanuel. This is Emmanuel, God with us, Bible church, right? This is the heart of the gospel. This is about our relationship with God. And I would say that this is the most important part of the whole passage today. It is far more important than what heaven looks like. What matters more than all the gold, jewels, pearls, and even other people who are in heaven is that God is there. And if you don't want God, you don't want heaven. But if God is what you want, what you really want more than anything, you would climb mountains, go through dark valleys, beat on heaven's door until your hands are bleeding to be with God. Now, by the way, that word uh, translated as dwelling place means tent or tabernacle. Now, the use of the word tabernacle uh, reminds us of how uh, God was with the Jews as they made their way to the promised land uh, during the Exodus. But at that time, God was with them in veiled form. He was in a cloud, a pillar of fire behind a curtain. However, In the new Jerusalem, there will be no more barriers. We will experience him in his fullness as people who have been redeemed and who have resurrected sinless bodies. So if you enjoy him now in this limited way with your flesh that still has sin dwelling in it, just you wait till you meet him face to face and dwell with him forever. Now, we've seen what our new home is like physically and relationally. Next, let's see what it's like emotionally. So what we have here is a description of heaven by uh, describing what is not there. So sometimes it's helpful and even necessary to describe things uh, by their opposite or according to their opposite. Have you ever tried explaining to someone? Have you ever tried to explain to someone something that is unlike anything that person has experienced? It's a very difficult thing uh, to do. So sometimes you have to start with what that person knows and say it's not like that. And that's what's going on here. So because of God, heaven will be a place of eternal joy. Now, please remember that we're talking about an emotional description of heaven here. Now, one of the greatest causes of grief is death. So I'm saying grief is the opposite of joy. But God already got rid of death in the previous chapter. And let me apply this a little bit here. In order to deal with uh, grief and pain properly, you need to have an eternal perspective. If you look for resolution for your grief and pain here on earth, uh, you'll most likely be disappointed. God uses things like grief and pain to get our attention. Like grief and pain are arrows that point us to eternity. 
Sometimes God will be gracious and give us resolution and justice this side of heaven. But he doesn't promise to. So when dealing with grief, please uh, don't put your hope in uh, earthly results. This passage that we're studying here today is the answer, at least partially, uh, to your questions regarding grief. Heaven is a place where grief is absent and in its place. As passages like Psalm 1611 teach, there is eternal joy. So that was the description of our new home. We saw it explained from a physical, relational, and emotional perspective. Let's now learn about how we can get to our new home. So in verses 5 through 8, we get directions on how to get to our new home. And in these verses, we'll see the source of the directions as well as the specific directions or requirements uh, for getting to our new home. So the source is the one who is seated on the throne, and that person is, of course, God. And the fact that he sits on a throne reminds us that he is a king, which emphasizes the importance of these words that God is making all things new. Now, there's a reminder for God, I mean, for John to write down what he sees and hears. He is told to write several times in the book of Revelation, and this is the last time he's commanded to write down these words. Now, these words that God gives are trustworthy and true. The word translated as trustworthy is basically the word for faith. And the idea is that we can place our faith in these words. And not only are they trustworthy, They are also true. This, of course, makes sense because God never lies, and it is impossible for him to do so. And what does this God who never lies say? He says, it is done. This refers to the previous words, I am making all things new. His creation is now complete. And the proclamation that he is the alpha, first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet, And the rephrasing of the same concept in the phrase beginning and end, those emphasize his absolute control over the world as well as his creatorship of everything. The one who started it all, completes it all, and is the source of salvation. He offers people an opportunity to drink from the spring of the water of life without payment. You can get for free the most valuable thing in the universe, namely eternal life. I mean, it reminds me of my economics days. I studied economics at UCLA. I don't know if you guys studied economics. There's this thing called the diamond water paradox where, like, something you know, useless like diamonds costs so much. Like, it, you don't need it to live, right? But water, which you need for life, is relatively cheap. Like, this is even a greater of a paradox than that, that we can get for free eternal life. You do need to come and drink, though. So that's the source of directions to our new home, God himself. Last, let's look at the specifics of the directions of our new home. Now, I've been using the phrase, our new home, uh, because I think most of us here, if not all, uh, profess to be believers. However, I need to let you know that there are requirements uh, for getting into heaven. And if you don't meet the requirements... You won't able, uh, be able to call heaven your home. And before you think that's not fair, uh, that not everyone gets into heaven, please remember that no one deserves to get into heaven. We're all sinners, right? Romans 5.12 tells us that we all have Adam's sin in our spiritual accounts with God. And then Psalm 51.5, uh, in that verse, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And so he's not saying that he was born out of wedlock. That's not what it means. Uh, Because the point of Psalm 51 is uh, confession of his own sin, not his mother's, right? So he's saying that when he was born, he was already born with a sinful nature. And even though he couldn't help being born a sinner, he still owns up to his sin and confesses it to God. We're all sinners deserving of God's eternal punishment. But God graciously offers salvation to all of us. So going back to Revelation 21, 6 through 8, we see that there are three uh, requirements for getting into heaven. 
And those three requirements are thirsting, conquering, and repenting. Let's first look uh, at the first requirement, thirsting, in verse 6. The word used for thirsting here is the same one used in Matthew 5, 6, which you might be familiar with. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So, as we've been studying uh, Revelation 21 today, we have been looking at what would be the ultimate satisfaction for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it's not even righteousness uh, exactly that they ultimately want, but God himself. He is their ultimate satisfaction. And the great thing about those who thirst for God is that he will give himself to them. He will indeed satisfy their thirst. So that's the first requirement for getting into heaven. You have to want God. You have to have this thirst for him. The next requirement is that you have to be one who conquers. The word translated conquers in verse 7 is the same word that the brand Nike, that word is based on, and it means victory. Maybe some of you know that. So what is this person supposed to conquer? Now this word conquer is a favorite of John's. Out of the 28 appearances of this word uh, in the Bible, 23, so 23 out of 28, uh, are found in John's works. The best explanation of what it means to conquer can be found in Revelation 2.26, I think. Revelation 2.26 says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give authority over the nations. The idea is that One who maintains an obedient life to God to the end will receive the promise. And the promise is this heritage. Let me see that in verse 7. Which is the new creation that was mentioned earlier in this passage. And please note the intimate language in verse 7, or used at the end of verse 7. I will be his God and he will be my son. That's the language of adoption. And even the word heritage is used earlier to express uh, the language of uh, family relationships. This is the promise given to those who commit themselves to obeying God to the end. So the point is not perfect obedience in this life. We won't be able to do that, but abiding obedience. So not perfect obedience, but abiding obedience. To not give up along the way, but to make it to the end of life, still committed to God. That's the goal. The point is to cross the finish line. That, of course, is only made possible by God, but we need to put in the effort on our side and be faithful to the end. We'll have the Spirit's power, but there is an element where we need to put out our effort. So we've seen two requirements for those who want to make heaven their home. They need to thirst for God and conquer this life by obeying God to the end. Last, we see that repentance is also a requirement. Now, in verse 8, we see a strong warning that gives directions on how to get to heaven from a negative perspective. In other words, the strong language, but this is how you get to hell. So don't do this. And there are eight characteristics of those who are headed for hell. The lake that burns with fire and sulfur mentioned at the end of the verse. The characteristic that is hardest to understand is probably the first one, cowardly. Cowardly, that's kind of an interesting first term to choose, uh, to present. Now, being cowardly is not a good thing, we all know that, but why would that keep you out of heaven? So the issue is, why are they cowardly? What are they cowardly towards? The word is used to describe losing uh, one's faith because of challenging circumstances. It was used to describe Peter when he was walking on the waves and then getting scared and sinking into the sea. It describes those who are like the rocky soil in the parable of the soils. They heard the word and immediately received it with joy, but when tribulation and persecution came along the way, they fall away. So these people do not endure to the end. 
they will not make it to the celestial city. Next, the faithless are those who do not remain faithful to God. They fall away for other reasons besides being afraid of tribulation or persecution. Perhaps some sin draws their heart away from God and they fall away. The detestable are those who commit sins that are unusually horrible. And it's not about doing something really bad once, but these people have a lifestyle of doing detestable things. The next term, murderer, probably refers not just to people who have committed the sin of murder, but those who specifically murdered Christians. There's a context of uh, martyrdom uh, in the book of Revelation. So those who perhaps specifically murdered Christians during the tribulation are referred to here specifically. The sexually immoral are probably those involved in cultic uh, prostitution. The next one, I'm just going through verse 8. The next one, sorcerers uh, might seem a little strange to you. And we're not talking about magicians doing uh, card tricks or sawing people in half here, of course. But in some ways, this is kind of like Harry Potter magic. Um, The English word pharmacy uh, comes from the Greek word here. And the dictionary definition of the word is uh, one who is skilled in arcane uses of uh, herbs or drugs. It can mean poisoner uh, or one who does extraordinary, extraordinary things through occult means. And it sounds like fantasy, but if we're going to take the Bible seriously, we need to believe that to some degree, uh, things associated with the occult exist. And the best example I could think of is, uh, in the Bible, that is, uh, is the Witch of Endor. Sounds really mysterious, right? But there is actually this Witch of Endor that King Saul sought uh, help from in uh, 1 Samuel 28. He wanted to contact uh, the dead prophet Samuel, and she was able to do it. So um, there is a certain degree where uh, we need to believe in the occult. And uh, John tells us that people who practice these things will not enter heaven. The next one is idolaters. And I don't think I need to say too much about this one. I mean, the first uh, three out of the ten commandments uh, prohibit idolatry. Uh, Nothing, nobody uh, deserves worship except God and certainly Fake gods do not deserve worship. God hates idols. It, it makes all sense in the world that he does so. And last, all liars will not make it to the new Jerusalem. So liars stand in contrast to God, whose words are uh, trustworthy and true, right? We just talked about that. Now, the particular kind of lying referred to probably has to do with the lies regarding to the Christian faith. There are false prophets uh, mentioned in Revelation, There are ethnic Jews who claim to be true believers. They are liars too. And there are also false witnesses uh, mentioned all over the Bible, New Testament. There were false witnesses accusing Stephen uh, during his martyrdom. And there were fake Christians who say they're Christians, but really not, because they don't obey God. Uh, And you can mention, uh, John mentions these things in his letter, uh, 1 John, numerous times. Now, people with these eight characteristics will be kept out of the New Jerusalem and spend eternity in the lake of fire. And please notice that these are characteristics. Uh, People, these people are characterized by these qualities. So Christians still might do some of these things or maybe all of these things to some degree, but they do not practice uh, these things. But if you find yourself in the category of those headed for the lake of fire instead of the new Jerusalem, heed the warning. You still have a chance to change your course. One of the most hopeful passages uh, regarding this, uh, helpful and hopeful passages, is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, which goes like this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love this part. And such were some of you. But you were washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Did you catch what Paul is saying here? There is hope for even the worst of sinners. We do not need to be slaves to sin. God can free you from all of your sin. And that's how powerful and gracious God is. Now at the beginning of the Bible, the word says that God created the heavens and the earth. And here in today's passage, God recreated uh, the heavens and the earth. There's a real celestial city called the New Jerusalem, and that's where God lives. He has invited us to come and to live with him. And God told us what this place looks like in verses 1 through 4, and he has also told us how to get there in verses 5 through 8. So while we're here on earth, let's live like the believers listed in Hebrews 11, who thirsted, conquered, and repented. Referring to the faithful Old Testament saints, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, or for them a city. Now, what an amazing thought, that God would all do this, do all this for sinners like us. So, my fellow pilgrims, as you face all the dangers, toils, and snares of this life, please keep your eyes on the celestial city. It is no dream. It is real. It is just as real as the earth right here that is passing away. So keep your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of faith and follow in his steps and know that you stand in grace and have confidence that God's grace will indeed lead you home. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning, this opportunity to gather together to worship you as a body of believers. Pray that you would impress upon our hearts the truths of today's passage. Help us indeed uh, love these truths. Help us to thirst after you. Help us to want you more than anything. And may you give us the grace and strength we need to abide in your truth in this life to the end. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.